the most shocking aspect of it to me was just to envision the the sheer the the youth of these airplanes. Um, if you think about the fact that um, you know the between the women who were young and the soldiers who were so achingly young, um, you know the only person over age twenty five or thirty would have been the pilot. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk with author Julia Cook, whose new book, Come Fly the World, looks at the golden age of air travel in the 1960s and the women who worked on classic airlines like Pan Am back at a time when stewardess work helped transform the global mobility of American women. In addition to exploring the glamorous reputation and at times the less than glamorous reality of air travel in the era, Julia and I talk about how consumer airlines were transformed in the jet age and how being a stewardess was actually a very popular job for women back in the day. We talk about how hijacking was a lot more common back then than it is now and how part of the task of working on commercial flights involved flying soldiers into and refugees out of war zones like Vietnam. We start by talking about how Julia came to research and write a book about air travel. Let's listen in. So Julia, your book is called Come Fly the World. Uh, why don't you just give a thumbnail sketch of what it's about and how you came to write it? Yeah, so it is about um, the international airline stewardesses, as they were called back then, um, of primarily of Pan, Am, um, Pan American World Airways, which... Uh, was the U.S.'s only exclusively international airline. There were other airlines back then that flew um, back in the jet age, which is the, the time period that the book deals with. Um, the, there were other airlines that flew internationally as well, but Pan Am was the only American airline that flew only international routes um, and that had a round-the-world flight so that you could leave from JFK and encircle the globe and land back in L.A. Um, and vice versa. So the book is about um, the the stewardesses, and it, it really kind of it posits them as being something between an adrenaline junkie, a flaneuse, um, and a diplomat. I came across the um, the the subject uh, accidentally. I went to an event at the TWA uh, terminal in New York at JFK. I was living in New York and um, writing a lot about art and architecture and travel, and I really just wanted to go see this this terminal, which had, was designed and built by Eero Saarinen. And it's beautiful. It's like this, it's a cathedral to, you know, the concept of air travel and the jet age. Um, and so I went and um, I wound up meeting these two former uh, stewardesses, and I was completely entranced by them. Um, they were really smart. They were sophisticated. They were, um, they talked about uh, events of geopolitics with this casual intimacy that I found really impressive. Um, they knew tons of information, but they, they seemed to really also feel very at home with both the information and, you know, with conversations about, you know, different world capitals. So I just, I wanted to know um, everything about them. <laughs> and then that was how it began. Yeah, I love this this era in, in air travel. Specific, I mean, it has glamour attached to it, and we can unpack that a little bit in the context of these women and what you learned about that era of travel. But I know that maybe 20 years ago, I was thinking about writing about airplanes, and I wrote a little note to myself that I'll share with you, which is based, I think I wrote to myself, pitching a story about airplanes in 2003 is like pitching a story about elevators, you know, in that airplanes have become so normal now, you know, that you get from yep. one place to another. Uh, and that any glamour that may have once attached itself uh, was gone by this early time in my travel writing career. And, you know, I had read Paul Theroux said that um, he compared uh, 
long flights to go into the dentist right down to the chairs, right? And, uh, <laughs> and Italo Calvino, I think, wrote that, that to fly is the opposite of traveling. That You go into this place that isn't a place, and then you get out and you're in a, you're in a different place. So I'm curious to know how, just to sort of give the audience some context on what made this era special, um, obviously, I sort of came of age in travel at a time when flying was not special in the way that it was during this golden age of air travel, this this jet age. Yet, only a few decades before, travel by air was really strange, you know, that the, the speed of travel was sort of seen as a train and a steamship theme. And I some other interesting details, I read that like the very first flight to serve uh, lunch boxes and in-flight meal was in 1919. Uh, and if you read about Evelyn Waugh traveling by plane from London to Paris in the 1920s, it was so cold, the passengers had to bring their own coat, and there was a little fur-lined box to put your feet in. <laughs> so so let's, <laughs> let's walk it from, this, from, from the era when planes were basically first invented to this era that you peek at, um, which is when the word jet was sort of a synonym for sophistication. It's so interesting that you raised the, the point of like how cold and... Um, really unpleasant frankly those first commercial air flights were they were they were flying under the weather so they were they were bouncing like 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 crazy um, and and it was really not um, not comfortable uh, which is part of how women came to perform the role of stewardess huh. um, at first it was uh, the the men who were the people who were serving passengers and attending to them and you know maintaining the safety of the the vehicle um, were men kind of in, in the tradition of train stewards. Um, and uh, what happened was a woman named Ellen Church in like, I think it was 1926, but in the mid twenties, um, approached a, a United um, Airlines executive at SFO. Uh, she was a pilot and a nurse. Um, she really wanted to be piloting the planes, but she basically said, hey, um, you know, you should, you should think about hiring nurses to be your attendants on your cabin attendants on your planes, because um, we know what we're doing. Um, and we, we can, you know, make people feel better about both the safety of this new vehicle um, and, uh, you know, their their air sickness and their freezing cold limbs and whatever else. Mm-hmm. Um, so he then turned around and made it um, a sexist thing um, and, and talked about how told, you know, he, he, he caught onto the pitch and thought it was a good idea, but not for the reasons that she cited, because he, he was basically saying um, more or less what, what a, an Atlantic article then um, said, which was, if a mere girl isn't worried, then why should a passenger be? Um, he thought that it, that uh, a woman's femininity uh, and delicacy um, in the air would, would convince travelers that this new technology was a good commercial bet. Um, so that's how women came to, um, hmm. be on the planes. So, so that, that takes us through like the 1930s as things are getting more commercial, um, and people are traveling a little more. And then in the forties, um, and this is all still propeller planes. Um, at that point they started, uh, uh, it was, it was becoming more widespread in the 1940s. Um, the war happened. And so obviously women, you know, men were not going to be crewing on passenger planes. Um, uh, but women were. So the role that, that that really solidified the role as being a woman's a woman's job, um, and then in the 50s, as the U.S. was you know experiencing its post-war um, economic stability, um, and uh, you know women were expected to go back into these really feminine roles after the kind of permissiveness of the um, 1940s, uh, the airplanes were also you know becoming the the primary mode of transportation for long distances, in part because 
airlines were really working hard to lure passengers onto them with these like perks um, because in that era that you couldn't um, the Civil Aeronautics Board uh, basically dictated how much an airline could charge for different um, flights and they, they calculated it based on uh, miles um, so if airlines couldn't compete with um, with fares they were going to compete with glamour which is why we all think of that era in flight as being um, super glamorous and and luxe um, because it because it really was because that was how airlines were um, were competing by when was it normal that all the flight attendants were women um, by the 60s it, by I mean certainly it was mostly women by the 50s but but by the 19 early 60s it was completely all women um, and then you know just as soon as that was happening uh, it, it, the women were um, then subjected to these really sexist rules like um, having to quit when they got married or turned 35 um, they wanted the airlines who were all which were all being run by men obviously um, were really wanted their their stewardesses to be young and beautiful and white hmm. um, and uh, so then then in the 1960s with the civil rights movement and the beginning of the you know the upswing of the feminist movement um, or the the second wave of feminism shall we say um, that's when basically you know the the young white beautiful women were more or less like you know we, we don't really we'd like to be able to keep working our jobs when we're 37 please thank hmm. you and so they um, started bringing lawsuits against the airlines well, I want to go in and, and dig some more into the changes, into like who these women were and the changes they brought. But I'm, I'm curious, at a personal level, do you remember, did you ever fly during any vestiges of this era? Because I remember, I think I took my first flights in the early 80s, and airplanes were sort of transitioning from a more glamorous dress-up-to-fly type vibe to more of a, the flying buses that airplanes became in the 90s and the 2000s. Um, did you experience ever any of this vestige of the glamour age, or uh, is, was it purely an intellectual exercise to go back in time and, and look at this previous era? So it, both. I, yes, I did to some extent experience it, um, but it was more of an intellectual exercise than anything else. Uh, the, because the reason why I experienced a degree of this glamour was because I was an airline family. My um, dad worked for Pan Am until I was nine. So we, we flew on the airline a lot, uh, which meant that but but as an um, as an airline family that we definitely got dressed up to fly. My mom would would get us dressed and because we, we were representing the airline, even if we were um, just, you know, standby passengers. Actually, let's talk a little bit about Pan Am and what it represented, because Pan Am isn't even around anymore. I think some of my younger listeners, you know, they might think, oh, isn't that a TV show that was sort of like Mad Men that ran one season? You know, um, so what was what makes Pan Am special and, and how long did it last? So Pan Am um, was uh, the United States' first and only uh, exclusively international airline. It, it was what it was the airline that kind of kicked off the the um, American airline industry on some level. Uh, it was uh, it lasted from the 20s through the, I think it was 1991 um, when it declared bankruptcy, uh, and it was um, it was kind of an embodiment of uh, American air glamour in a way, um, in part because of, you know, the internationalism, the internationalism, I, I would urge any listeners who want to read about the, um, the glamour of the international in the 1950s and 60s to pick up Virginia Postrel's book, um, the power of glamour, uh, longing and the art of visual persuasion. Um, it's a really interesting read, uh, but it has a bunch of chapters about why, um, internationalism as such was just such a 
such a powerful lore in that era. Um, it was brand new. Uh, the ability to access all of these different places. So on Pan Am, you got to, you know, you were guaranteed that if you set foot on a Pan Am plane, you were going to, your feet were next going to hit the ground someplace that was not the United States. So that was really powerful. For for passengers, how did a flight differ, if at all, between like a 1966 flight to, to the flights that we take internationally in, in 2021? So in 1966, on almost any American airline, you could kind of be guaranteed um, to have a, a pretty... An, an interesting experience. Um, they they really competed, as I said, via um, via glamour. So I you know I, I one airline uh, used to roll a gold carpet across the tarmac that you would walk on in order to get onto your plane. Um, on Pan Am, the menus were uh, designed and then the the um, the meals were planned out by Maxims of Paris. Um, the stewardesses wore. Um, uniforms by D- on Air France they wore Dior um, on different American airlines they wore Pucci Cassini Don Loper Edith Head on Pan Am um, the the air terminals were designed by the best architects of the day I mentioned the Aero Saarinen TWA terminal Pan Am had a gorgeous terminal um, that like literally Vogue um, in 1960 did a, a fashion shoot there and it was all about um, the glamour of the jet age so um so, you know, when you got on a plane, you would be served um, highballs and, and martinis and you could have a really nice meal. Um, on some of the Pan Am planes, they had like lounges um, on the 747 in the 1970s. It was upstairs in previous in earlier planes. There, it was up in the front. So you would walk through like a um, basically a, a nightclub type feel, not, not nightclub, but like a, a lounge, a lounge feeling with like tables and chairs and murals on the walls. It was pretty cool. We should probably bring in the women now, uh, just because, again, it, it's funny how since the TV show Mad Men came out, that's sort of a metaphor for this very specific era of the mid-20th century. Um, and so let's talk about what the women, what it was like to work on this plane and what kind of women worked there. What is the coffee, tea, or me stereotype? What was it speaking to? How was it wrong? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and what role did women play in 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 image and in reality as part of this jet age renaissance for flying so at the beginning of the 60s um and in the mid 60s uh women on all like the the job of stewardess was unbelievably popular in a way that is kind of hard to conceive of today um airlines accepted on pan am they accepted some three percent of applicants um, I think th- I have the numbers in the book, but I think uh, almost 300,000 people, women applied for, I think, um, like 2000 jobs. Um, it-, it was wildly popular. Uh, so they really picked um, women who you know, they-, they could be very stringent about um, the 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 applicants. Um, on Pan Am, women were expected to um, have a, a certain amount of college education. Um, at some point, it was required to have a college degree, but that was dropped at some point. They just required a, a couple years of college, um, and they had to speak two languages. Um, they also had to be a certain height, certain weight, um, and and really quite pretty. So so you had these women who, on the outside, you know, ad- adhered to these very superficial um, beauty norms, um, but, but really were quite smart and pretty ambitious. Um, in the late sixties, they had a, um, the statistic went that, um, 
you know, six or 7% of American women were graduating college, but 10% of Pan Am stewardesses had graduate degrees. Hmm. So that, that, that's, that's a, just to give you an idea of, um, what, what they looked like on the outside, which was very pretty, well put together and, you know, willing to adhere to this really feminine, um, beauty expectations of this corp, this airline that was run by men. But on the inside, they were really ambitious. They were all really um, world hungry, very curious, and um, pretty, pretty smart and driven women. You mentioned Copy to Your Me. Uh, that was a book that was published in 1968. It was written by a man. Um, it was published under the name of two stewardesses. And it, it, it really pulled together the stereotypes that were um, really kind of floating around in the 1960s as the sexual revolution was happening. And as these groups of really smart women uh, were experiencing this huge amount of freedom that was really unprecedented. Um, you know, keep in mind that in the 50s and earlier, it was it was not really socially acceptable for women to travel by themselves um, long distances unless you had you know a lot of money um unless you or if you had a chaperone that they experienced a level of really unprecedented freedom and for that freedom um, they were pigeonholed as being kind of um in it for the men um they they were um you know there was a lot of uh stereotyping around stewardesses being um you know, flirtatious or, um, you know, being in it to meet um, a high class husband um, in first class. So um, when the sexual revolution was happening, uh, those those stereotypes were kind of like all distilled um, by this PR flack, Donald Bain, who wrote this book, um, uh, Coffee to Your Me, which was, you know, basically all about, um, you know, kind of uh, vapid um, uh man-hunting stewardesses and then that was off and running there was a whole um, genre of um, books and movies that were all about these you know flighty women who were um, really excited to to travel and go on lots of dates Um, and you know it got really there are actually some really super lewd and gross um, iterations of of the genre Um, but but for the most part it really solidified this kind of concept in pop culture that stewardesses were um were not very serious women at the very least and that, that a lot of them were kind of a little slutty too well i thought it was interesting the women you brought in and talked to um that their travel passion sort of went in the face of these stereotypes uh, one of them said life is too short to waste on dullness and she had a lot of i think before this is karen before she was uh, a Pan Am employee, she did a lot of her own independent travel in a way that was not quite normal at the time. So as you talked to these women, one, how did you find the women? They must be quite old now. Uh, and what did you learn from them? Yeah, I found that that drive to travel to be really remarkable. Um, I found them via mostly via the Pan Am um, alumni organization. Um, it's called World Wings International. Um, and these these women are really remarkable uh, travelers still. So they'll they'll have these conferences and conventions um, all around the world once a year, and then they'll have luncheons in different cities all throughout the year. Um, so I just started kind of crashing their parties more or less, um, showing up and just talking to whoever um, would talk to me. And they all were thrilled to talk to someone who was more excited to hear about you know um, the the aspects of international international diplomacy that they were doing. And, you know, they, um, Pan Am chartered a lot of war flights in the Vietnam War. So I wanted to hear about that too. And they were really excited to talk to me about these kind of more serious things rather than, you know, what celebrities they had, um, they had served on their flights and, 
where they could buy the best um, shoes or whatever. Uh, they also liked talking about those things too. But um, to, to be approached with a more serious gaze was, um, I, I sensed they were pretty excited about that. So they were all really excited to, to introduce me to so-and-so. They would say, you know, you got to talk to so-and-so. She has an incredible story about whatever. And then I would talk to so-and-so and her story about whatever would be amazing. And then she would say, you have to talk to two other people. Um, I found them really remarkable because they, uh, they still travel to this day. They're in their seventies and eighties. They travel a ton. They travel with each other. They are to this day really open to new experiences and, and to different kinds of people and to, um, you know, to, to traveling and, you know, all the things that I think you and I would say you can get from travel that they're still like that in their seventies. And I just found it remarkable. They weren't just trained in, in mixing cocktails, right? That they were basically trained in all aspects of trade of safety, physics. Um, they had to learn how to use chopsticks, for example, if they didn't know how to use them before on flights that involved chopsticks. So what kind of training and expectations went into the vocational part of what they were doing on the plane? The training was incredible. I mean, it, the, it was so much fun. The um, Pan Am documents are all housed at the University of Miami's Kislak Center. They're in an archive down there. And it was incredible to sit there and kind of just rifle through these um, old training manuals just for the sheer diversity of what was what they were expected to learn. Like exactly as you mentioned, they, they were tested on, you know, how to prepare a good highball and how to slice lamb, but then also the physics of how a plane moves through the air. Because, um, you know, since, since the technology was pretty new back then, um, the airline execs understood that people were going to be nervous on on planes that you were going to get first time flyers and and you were going to get people who were totally freaked out um and that the stewardesses needed to be able to to explain to them competently and calmly exactly what was going on um in in you know in terms of the mechanics of flight so they were taught these courses on on how on the mechanics of it um, they were taught about um, all of the different, you know, culinary traditions of the different places that they were going to because um, they wanted to be able to, you know, they wanted to the airline for the from the airline's perspective, they wanted repeat passengers, um, and they understood that, you know, dignity and, and cultural respect um, was probably going to cement that much better than um, anything else, and so they wanted their stewardesses to understand those, um, you know, uh, traditions. So they they read about them. Um, it was really remarkable. They they were treated, you know, the, the word um, diplomacy comes up over and over and over and over again in the, the training manuals. And um, that's really what they were, they were treated as. Well, it sounds like they had a lot of expectations. Was it was it hard work? Did they did, the, did did any of them burn out? Did they savor it? How did this work? Combination of the two, you know, I was really interested in the, um, yeah, I, I, I wound up talking to a lot of the women who stayed on it for in the job for for quite some time. So, um, so those you know, those were the women that are are the women that appear in the book for the most part. Um, but but there were certainly quite a few who who definitely um, didn't love it and didn't wind up lasting quite as long. Um, but for a lot of them, the trade off was incredible. You know, the the work was hard. They were on their feet all the time. They were tired. They were you know because they were moving around the world. Um, in like in a loop basically they were constantly jet lagged they they um you know lynn one of the other women in, in the book one of the main characters um 
uh, half of her, uh, I started noticing I was reading her letters that she sent home to her mother in the 60s and 70s. And um, underneath the date, you know, that she's, she's got these parentheses that say, I think she's not really sure what day it is or where, you know, huh. she knows where she is, but she doesn't know when she is huh. because she's moving around the globe so much, um, which I found really poignant and, and, um, and interesting. So she, you know, it was hard work. Uh, but the trade-off for the women that I was talking to was there was no, it was a no brainer. Um, they, they got this access to these different geographies, um, both in terms of like an, an acquisitive sense of it, you know, they, they, you know, what they could see in different places, what they could learn, what they could do, the different experiences they could have. But also, um, I sensed, um, in terms of their identity, you know, they, they got to see who they were in these different places and in these different circumstances. Um, you know, I think uh, I certainly have learned a lot about myself in travel. Um, and I think they, you know, they sense that too, like that, that you can, you can learn about yourself by being in different places and situations. And, and I think they relished that. Did their schedules allow them to to sort of sink their teeth into into journeys, or did they have to do as much as they could in a seventy two hour uh, layover between the next duty call? Some sometimes they could. There were certain flight routes, for example, um, the Africa route was from out of JFK. It was really popular among stewardesses because you got three days um, uh, in either direction from uh, in Monrovia. Um, so you know you you got. You got it was generous pay because the pay was calculated from time away from base, um, and you also got three days to do whatever you wanted. Um, uh, there were other flight routes that had similarly generous um, leave times, but but um, but a lot of them were not quite that generous. Um, and in in those situations, it was really up to the women to you know request time off and use their employee passes. I mean, if you think about it, they were all they were they were able to buy tickets at ninety percent off. So, you know, Karen, you mentioned Karen is an incredible traveler, just totally determined to see everything and go everywhere and and not in like a calculated way, more in a just really kind of casual, um, you know, well, that sounds fun. I want to do it sort of way. It feels like there's an extent to which there was some some pioneering travel by women going on at the time. And even though there was a stereotype, sort of this two dimensional sexist stereotype that attached itself to stewardesses. They were very much on the vanguard of a new era of mobility for women. So how did this coincide with, of course, the 60s is, is seen as an era when, when, when feminism was coming to the fore a bit. How did, how did these stewardesses um, become a part of that feminist movement of, of the time or even how were they ahead of the time? It really foreshadowed, you know, what, what I think, it, I mean, the ease at least with which I feel like I travel around the world. I, I don't really worry that much about my own safety, um, except for in very, you know, certain circumstances. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not moving around the world concerned for myself. Um, and I think that uh, they, they felt the same way in the 60s when very few women um, would have would have felt that way. Um, it was a testy relationship with the feminist movement, um, in part because they were really um, they were willing to go along with this, you know, femininity, this this enforced corporate, um, you know, ideal of a woman um, because of the freedom that it, it got them. So, you know, a lot of stewards or a lot of feminists really um, didn't didn't love that. But at the same time. They, um, their lawsuits that they, uh, I mentioned that some of them brought lawsuits against the airlines in order to be able to keep their jobs, um, in the sixties. Um, and th those lawsuits really were, um, some, they set the legal precedent for, uh, labor law that would later 
happened. They were among the first um, gender-based discrimination lawsuits in the U.S. And the feminist movement was, was you know, recognized that, that that was really important. So a number of them were involved with NOW and, and with different um, feminist organizations. So, um, like, historically... From the end of the fifties to the end of the seventies, what kind of what kind of changes were for women were were going concurrently with this generation of flight attendants who were sort of pioneering in the way they traveled? So, in, at the end of the fifties, you know, one of the th- the most remarkable statistics that I saw um, when I was researching this book was the the um, the marriage ages. Uh, which I think is a good proxy for women's freedoms, shall we say, or, you know, women's ability to envision um, a life outside of husband and kids and these kind of more, you know, prescribed traditional feminine roles. Um, The numbers were really nuts. You know, in some years there were more women getting married um, before high school was over, like right at the end of high school, than there were women going to the prom. Um, So the the numbers were very low in the, the, in the late fifties, as far as, um, women who chose not to get married um, immediately after high school or college. Um, Marriage was kind of this ironclad norm. Um, And it was, even if you didn't do it immediately, it was expected that you would at some point and you were swimming against, um, swimming up current. Hmm. There were not a lot of women in in graduate schools. Um, There were, and you know, the women who who were in these graduate schools were aware that they were going to be um, not entirely welcomed. Um, So that was the, the, the the perception was um, all of the stewardesses that I talked to told me that they felt like they they um, if they wanted to work after college or high school they knew that they would either have to be um, a secretary, nurse, teacher, um, or a stewardess. So if you think about that, you know, for me at least, that's um, that's a pretty clear option. That <laughs> um, the options are are pretty pretty. Um, pretty limited. And I would definitely pick stewardess also. Hmm. Hmm. One, one interesting thing that I found is that it was a different era of flight in, insofar as what happened on airplanes and how stewardesses presented themselves. But there was, it was also an era of airplane flight that just doesn't exist anymore in that hijacking happened all the time. And, uh, I don't know, it wasn't as, as, as critical or dangerous as it has seemed to be now. And then also, Pan Am did a lot of flights uh, with soldiers and refugees during the Vietnam War. So how was the atmosphere of this era of flight itself different? It was totally different from today in that, you know, um, so just to, to understand you know, the, the global politics of the moment, you know, there were in the 1960s, um, a huge huge portion of the world had just been um, been decolonized. It was the era of massive decolonization after World War II. So there were these new countries that were, um, you know, deciding how they wanted to exist in the world. Um, they were deciding if the Cold War was on. Um, so they were deciding whether they wanted to ally themselves with the U.S. or with the USSR. Um, the air treat, since air flight, easy flight was relatively new. So air treaties were also pretty new. Um, the Vietnam war was happening. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the hijackings that you're talking about, yeah, there was, it was the golden age of hijacking. Um, people were taking advantage of this kind of sense of, um, instability in a way, or lack of, you know, the, 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 the fact that, that, um, treaties were in flux and air travel was new and countries were still figuring out who they, you know, who they were on some level, how, what, what, what their politics were going to be. Um, so hijackers, there's a great book called, um, the skies belong to us 
by Brendan Corner about the golden age of, of hijacking. And that's a much deeper dive on that particular subject than my book will be. But, um, but you know, a, a number of my uh, interview subjects expressed regret that they had never been on a hijacked plane because huh. um, in in those in the early days before they became fatal and they did eventually become fatal, um, in the seventies, the but in the late sixties, when they were beginning, um, they, they were, they were kind of novelties. It was a lot of American, um, communist sympathizers who wanted to go down to Cuba. Um, and, and so, you know, the planes would land and, um, they would be treated to the passengers would all be treated to a night at the Tropicana and in a hotel in a hotel. And then they'd be flown right back to the U S the next day. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really a different, I mean, for anyone who sort of came of age after nine 11, the idea of, 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 you know, hijacking an airplane is, is horrifying, but it really, I think just about every week there was some sort of hijacking. Is there, is there an example of like a famous hijacking where interview interview subjects, um, evolved or in adjacent to hijackings. What what was that like? I mean, did they continue to to serve drinks? Um, how did yeah. they manage hijackings? No, they they kept serving drinks. Um, they so basically the the hijacker would, you know, tell the stewardess that they wanted a um, that that you know that they had a a bomb or a gun or some sort of firearm, and they would say you know tell the pilot to head toward Havana or wherever else. I'm just using that as an example. Um, and then, you know, they would, uh, they, they, on the ground, the, they would, um, if, if it was successful, you know, sometimes the, the stewardesses were instructed to, to not serve caffeinated beverages or alcohol and to keep the guy talking and to, um, have them, you know, try to convince them to, uh, to, <laughs> to land the plane the, the, um, it was really interesting because a lot of they were basically encouraged to use their femininity and and um, and try to get that try to manipulate the the hijacker to to think that it was his idea to land the plane um, right. somewhere else. Um, but but anyway, then if they wound up in Havana, the passengers or wherever else, the passengers would just be um, plied with food and drink um, and entertained, and then until they were flown back. Um, there's a great quote: uh, a, a professional, a women's pro golfer. It's great and depressing quote. Um, that this woman's pro golfer, Barbara Romack, um, said that she loved her hijacking experience. She got more press out of it than she did for women winning, winning the women's open. Huh. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's, it's incomprehensible to, to us from our contemporary vantage point. But if you think about it in terms of, you know, the fact that there had never been a fatal airplane hijacking ever at that point in the U S, um, you know, then, then it becomes, it loses its teeth a little bit. It almost sounds fun. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, also, one thing I didn't realize until I read your book is that a lot of soldiers in the Vietnam era were ferried into the war via Pan Am. Uh, talk yes. about talk about the, the involvement of the airline with the war effort and sort of as on the behalf of a, of a government airline. Yeah. So um, in the U.S., you know, most other countries... Um, have what's called a flag carrier, which is an airline that's associated with the government. Um, in the U.S., we don't have that. Um, we have uh, it's a free marketplace, um, and so as a result, the um, the airline companies to this day have a standing agreement with the U.S. government that in the case of um, in the instance of a, a global conflict and needing to get troops somewhere, the um, the civilian airlines will help. Um, so back in, in the Vietnam war era, um, well, and, and before then Pan Am, Pan Am has always been, had always been very associated with the U S government. Um, it had, uh, contributed to the war effort in world war two. 
Um, it, it, it brought refugees out of uh, the Korean War. And so when the Vietnam War, um, the troop buildup happened, uh, it, Pan Am and 12 other airlines were contracted to bring soldiers out um, to Vietnam. Uh, and then at, at, in 1966, when the Department of Defense said that they wanted to send um, every soldier that was in uh, Vietnam for his uh, year-long tour of duty uh, out of the war for a five-day R&R trip, uh, but th that they wanted to do that, but they didn't have enough planes, Pan Am um, immediately stepped in and said, you know, we're, we're going to do it. And they made a big um, PR deal out of it. They said they were going to charge a uh, dollar a month for the first four months, which they did. Um, and then following that, they were going to charge at cost. So they basically set up a, an airline within the airline um, just just to serve Vietnam. It's interesting. I read about all of this, and I don't know how. It, it never occurred to me until I started writing about um, the stewardesses that, that, of course, there were going to be women on all of these planes, <laughs> um, that, that these women who were really, uh, you know, conceived of in the U.S., at least, as being these non-serious kind of, um, you know, women who were out there for shopping and, and dating. And they were literally flying into a war zone. They were flying these, these men, many of whom had been drafted, who did not want to be going into war um, and who were deeply frightened. Um, in, they were flying them into an active um an active combat zone. What was it like to fly these soldiers? Because I'd imagine, I mean, the, the, the age of the drafted combat soldiers in Vietnam was quite young. And the stewardesses were quite young by, by requirement back then. Uh, yeah. How did they feel flying these, these young men into and out of war zones? You know, it was, it's, it, you're, you're touching on something that I found um, really, like the most shocking aspect of it to me was just to envision the the sheer the the youth of these airplanes. Um, if you think about the fact that um, you know the between the women who were young and the soldiers who were so achingly young, um, you know the only person over age twenty five or thirty would have been the pilot, mm. first officer. Um, they uh, the women really reacted. They all reacted very differently um, in terms of whether they they wanted to be there. You know, one of my interview subjects took a lot of pride in um, contributing what she saw as contributing to the war effort. She believed in the war um, and she agreed with it and she felt a great deal of pride. Um, another one of my main subjects was actually active in the anti-war protest movement. She um, was really startled and, and um, upset when she was assigned her first war flight. Um, uh, she really didn't know what to make of it. She felt complicit in something that she um, thought was abhorrent. Uh, but when, once she uh, was on the flight, the, the thing was, what I heard from every stewardess was that these men, it was, it was heartbreaking um, that they, uh, you know, once they met them and saw them and understood that, you know, they were not just numbers um, of, of troops. They were humans. Each of them had, had their own story. They would show the women the pictures of their girlfriends and they would talk to them about their fears and, and, um, and, you know, they, they felt really strongly that they wanted to give these soldiers um, a dignified experience um, and, you know, as much compassion and, and empathy as they possibly could. Another thing that surprised me, too, was that they often flew in the other direction, like refugees or actually like the evacuation of Vietnam at the end of that war. Uh, what were those experiences like and who exactly were they flying out of Southeast Asia? Yeah, at the end of the war, um, there were a couple of flights that were dedicated um, just to uh, children 
who were also they were all supposed to be orphans um, of the, the the war. This was in 1975, um, and uh, in in reality, it was kind of a um, it was a lot more complicated. Some would definitely call it a botched. Um, mission or a botched plan. Um, but, but the operation baby lift flights at the end of the war were, um, were run on various airlines, but the most visible again among them were, and the first were on Pan Am, uh, that basically what happened was, um, as just as Saigon was about to, um, fall to the, the North Vietnamese, um, and, you know, different cities had one by one, um, you know, the, the, the North Vietnamese had come South and as they did, um, different flights were coming out of, these different cities and, and they were all really horrific. They were just more the, the news out of South Vietnam was um, more and more um, horrific by the day. Um, and uh, people were desperate to leave and, and by air was seen as the best option. Uh, so airports were really chaotic. Um, orphanages were, were even more chaotic. Um, mothers were, were very afraid for the lives of their children, especially the mothers of, um, ha- of, of children who were um, of, uh, the children of the U.S. servicemen. So mm-hmm. these were um, biracial kids. Uh, and the rumor had it that the North Vietnamese were, were, was just going to slaughter all of them. So these moms were just terrified and they, a lot of them uh, left their children at these orphanages um, in hopes that they would be taken to, to the West and adopted. Um, and, and so uh, at the end of the war, amid all of this chaos um, and rumor and, and total fear, um, the, there, were, there, was a number of, there were a number of flights. Um, the U.S. Uh, Gerald Ford committed to bringing 2,000 um, orphans to the U.S. And they, again, they just needed planes. Um, and and that's what um, what launched this Operation Baby Lift series of flights um, that that took off in April. As you were researching the book, you obviously had this group of women who become characters in your book. What other kinds of research did it entail? Uh, so I I felt strongly when I started researching this book that I really wanted to couch um, that that I wanted to base myself in in the oral history. I really wanted to um, talk about their experiences first and then build the research around those experiences. In part because I felt like um, nothing that I'd read uh, there wasn't anything like that that existed yet. That that these women that their their experiences and what they lived and how it shaped them. Um, had never really been written about before. So my research was really, it started with um, with them. I would have these interviews with them, and then I would go and read um, archival, um, you know, newspaper articles. Um, and then I would look in the, the Pan Am archives um, to kind of, you know, understand what was happening around. What there's they a, told there's me. a Pan Am archives. Yeah, at the University of Miami. Hmm. Um and and it's you know it, it's a fascinating place. There are amazing. I, one thing that my research really led me to believe is that there are probably like four or five other books about Pan Am and or the women of the era, um, and or the airline that that deserve to be written. Um, it's a really rich archive um, as far as lots of different different angles and different um, different things that could be written about. Um, so I would, you know, I, I would talk to them and I, my, my approach was really to toggle between, um, reading a lot, interviewing a lot, and then, um, going to the archives to confirm the details around what my interviewees told me and then going back to them again. Um, the, the women who, the main, the main women in the book, um, were incredibly patient with me. They would talk about these different scenes, um, and experiences that they'd had from like four different angles. (laughs) 
Did, did the archives help them spark memories? And, and were their details ever at odds with the, with the archives? Was, was that a dynamic as you tried to figure out what the facts were of this era? It was with um, with a number of, of my interview subjects. It, it it was it was not an issue with the main um, the women that 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 you will have met. Um, they they are uh, their memories were all really incredible, and um, really did uh, conform really well with what I read in in newspapers and arch- and archives. Um, that's kind of why I settled on, on mm. and not kind of, it's completely why, why they're the main subjects of the book. Um, there were a couple of, um, women whose, whose stories were not quite as, um, you know, they were a little more wobbly in terms of facts. Mm. Um, so I, I didn't, my, 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 um, my approach with the facts, uh, of the book was that I was going to, um, I only included things in this book if I could if I could either see a scene, hear about the same scene from two different people who had been there, um, and if they, they told me the same thing, um, or if I could um, uh, find confirmation of things that women were telling me in, in a newspaper or something like that. Over the course of the project, what surprised you? What did you, what did you find that you hadn't expected, or, or what details uh, made, gave you pause? You know, to be honest, the um, the war flights were were shocking to me. Um, the degree to which the the women were, um, you know, put in these really um, dangerous positions. Uh, they 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 saw, you know, they they came under fire. Um, they they watched bodies being loaded into the holds of the planes that they were um, that they were going to fly across the ocean. Um, they they ferried out these um, these really hurt. Um, children at the end of the war, um, they they were they they had to deal with men undergoing um, in heroin withdrawal, um, and they they kind of tried to protect them from themselves. I heard stories of women who um, uh, who collected the drugs um, that that the soldiers were going to try to bring back um, to the U.S. But you know the, because these women had were you know back and forth in customs a lot, and they they knew how strict the the um, the drug control was getting. And so they would walk through the plane, convincing the men to, to hand over their drugs. Um, and, and, you know, they would dispose of them. They, they were really, um, they were, they were, they were really very involved. And I found that was a huge surprise for me. Yeah. Weird, weird to think about. Um, how is air travel different now? Uh, and how did this era of air travel influence what we know now? I mean, air travel is completely different now. Um, the experience of it is just, you know, like as you, you mentioned Paul through <laughs> and his um, dentist analogy. You know, I think it's it's um, we're accustomed to a degree of cheap and easy travel that was unthinkable back then in the same way that, you know, the level of glamour and the event of it would be unthinkable to us today. Um, the 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 ease of it and the. Um, the inexpensiveness of it today would have been unthinkable back then. Um, so, you know, I think that's the the big difference between then and now. You know, my, my dad, who worked on the airline, he will point out that um, very few of the airlines that existed back then are still in existence today. Um, I think it's really hard to um, to run an airline. You know, it's it's not a great business to be in as far as you know making money and and you know, running a business. It, it's a hard. Um, it, 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 they're hard numbers to crunch. Um, so, you know, I think it, it's, 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 um, I don't think there are that many vestiges of, of back then, um, today. 
what are you left with now that the project is done? What what do you and should we remember and appreciate about this era of air travel and the women who worked in it? You know, one of the things that I walked away really thinking a lot about um, is, you know, I've been asked a lot um, why we're so nostalgic about Pan Am um, and that era of air travel. And and I think one of the things, there are a couple of things that um, that I, I was left with and left thinking about the nostalgia of back then that, that you know, it, it's not just because it was glamorous. Um, it, it's because... Um, you know, the, on Pan Am, at least Pan Am became a, a symbol of, of, um, change and freedom and optimism for a lot of people who were, um, you know, I mentioned the refugees out of, out of Saigon, but, but tons of refugees came back, uh, to the U S from the USSR on Pan Am. Um, they came from tons of different countries. Um, and so that for, for a lot of people, um, it, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And for, for the women of, of, Pan Am and for on other airlines also, um, you know, one of the things that I uh, came to understand is the degree to which, um, you know, I mentioned identity, their, their senses of, of self, um, and, you know, self-actualization airlines gave them the ability to, to become who they were, um, to, to see, to, you know, to, to, to explore their, not only their career possibilities, um, but their senses of self. So for a lot of people who were involved in the airlines back then, um, the, the nostalgia is a really, um, it's an intimate thing. It, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's tied up in identity and it's tied up in, um, you know, their sense of possibility in the world. So, um, that's one of the things that I was really left with this concept that, um, you know, corporate um, allegiance to this this corporate this corporation this corporation that doesn't exist anymore um, is a lot bigger than just um, you know it was really fun to fly on and and weren't things better back then. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Julia Cook's book, Come Fly the World, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.